Welcome to the season finale of Bob's Just Asking. We'll actually be back in two weeks for the next season, but it's a themed season, so I had to separate them. In any case, this is a special episode because I'm interviewing Peter McDade, who is a very good friend of mine, a uh, songwriting partner, and a college professor, a drummer extraordinaire, and an author. His first novel, The Weight of Sound, uh, is a phenomenal book that I compare favorably to some of my some of the best work from Tom Parada and Jonathan Tropper. Uh, I strongly urge you to get that book, but if you haven't read it, start with the new book, Songs by Honeybird. We talked about that book. We talked about a variety of other things, and uh, it just so happens that today the book is published. Peter McDade. Welcome to Bob's Just Asking. Bob Fenster, it's a pleasure to be here. When did you start doing creative writing in a serious way? And are the rumors true that there's an unpublished novel in the archives? It's already with the with the rumors and the innuendo. I guess that I, it, I've never been asked when it became serious. And I guess I'm quite not, not quite sure when that is? I mean, I, I started creative writing in third grade as a means of entertaining myself. And there are uh, a series of unpublished short stories involving Sheer Luck Homely, my, uh, my detective who I invented in third grade. And then I would say, for serious, when, uh, when I moved to Georgia with my high school friends to become famous rock stars, uh, I brought with me my typewriter, and during some of the many, many hours of downtime you have along the trail to becoming a famous rock star, I began to write what I called novels in, in the bedroom of the house we were all renting. And I began to let other people read those. So maybe that's the serious step. Um, I look at them now, and I do have them. There's not one unpublished novel. I probably have six. They're not particularly good. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing. I thought if I wrote it once, and I had a typewriter, of course, this is pre-computer, so I had a typewriter, so I would type it once and go back and type it again to make it better, and then I would call it done. So there's one round of revision, which for me now is like, just clearing my throat still. Um, <laughs> So I have no idea how they hold up. I would, I would imagine it's not particularly good. So that would have been 1986. So I guess my, uh, a follow-up question that I hadn't planned was, feel, how do you get the drive to continue writing the novels when you were not thinking there was any chance that they would be published at that point? Is it just a matter of scratching an itch that you have or are you practicing, you know, thinking someday this will be something I do? Again, the answer might be to yes to both of those. It, it is an itch. It's not unlike um, continuing to play your drums into your 50s when you're, at this point, I'm well aware, right, that I'm never going to make a, a living or be a, 
a big famous rock star, but I still play the drums because it, um, it makes me feel better as a human, right? It's, it's something I'm doing that's engaging myself. Um, I don't like to garden or do watercolors or crossword puzzles, right? It's, these are, we have to find things we do to engage with the world. And so to me, writing was always, I think, selfishly as, as much for myself as for anybody else. Um, so I was writing them because I, I had fun doing it. And if it never went any further than that, I would also, I would still have fun doing it. Okay. So let's get to the book. Uh, most of songs by Honeybird takes place in Atlanta and you use many specific locations that Atlanta natives and frequent visitors would be familiar with. Do you see that as writing what, you know, providing some sense of verisimilitude or do we have another yes and yes? <laughs> um, self again, selfishly, I enjoy reading novels that have a, a specific place like th that exists somewhere, even if it, that somewhere is is not a real somewhere, but it feels like it's real. <clears throat> and so um, I really wanted this book to be in one city. The previous book had involved so many different cities and I enjoyed all that. And I tried to make each of those feel real, but I really wanted this book to be kind of soaked in one particular location. And Atlanta made the most sense because it's where I live. And it's so I, I know all those places. Um, and I, I also really wanted the studio apartment I had once lived in to be, to be in the book. And so that really is uh, B6 is really a, the, that whole building still exists to this day. It hasn't been uber developed yet, but there was such a vibe that that particular place that ever since I lived there, I thought like that would be someplace to put in a book someday. Um, so I like the idea of the city as almost a character um, of the book. Do um, do you hope to become the Ann Tyler of Atlanta? <laughs> <laughs> you mean I'm not already? <laughs> okay, so uh. <laughs> <laughs> don't answer that. Your, uh, your novel has two main characters. Uh, ben, the graduate student writing his dissertation on the Honeybirds, a biracial Southern rock band in the 1960s. And Nina, a waitress and part-time student who is trying to find her path. Oh, and she has a talking dog. Which story came first to you? Or which part of the, which story idea came first to you? And how far into the writing process did the other one begin to emerge? So that is actually a more complicated question than you might imagine. Um, there's a short story that I wrote in 1997 and I can date it because my friend David Epstein, who read the story, um, tracks things very well. And so <laughs> he mentioned that he'd gotten this story uh, in 1997 and that the book came out of that short story. And in the short story, um, a couple break up because she tells her boyfriend about it, her dog talking. And it's like 10 pages. And it's again, it's, I haven't read it in 25 years. It's not particularly good, probably. Um, so on one hand, the characters were both there from the beginning. But they also both changed 
several times in the, what is that, 25 years since, there's a, there's a 400 page version of this book that I threw away and I've written the whole thing. Uh, they had different names and different careers. He's still a graduate student, but he was researching a different topic. So of the two of them, she's, she was probably more fully formed early on. Um, and then her backstory is what changed this time around. As I, as I went back to it, I didn't reread what I had written. I still haven't read the, the 400 pages that I abandoned, I don't know, 10 years ago. I just started over again, trying to keep like the, the core of it, which is this idea of a relationship that dissolves because of person A saying something to person B that person B can just not wrap their head around. But then the, the various backstories are, are what really changed this time and what really brought it together. Um, her backstory with her family and then his research topic changed this time around and that's what pulled his thread together. So I, I can see uh, how in a short story, the element of a talking dog would be something you might not give too much thought to or have too much concern about, but how much did you second guess yourself about that being a, a key point in an entire novel? I'm, I'm second guessing it right now. I mean, you know, it's the first time. <laughs> Only because I brought it up. <laughs> no, it's the first, uh, this is, as I mentioned off, off air, uh, this is the first of what I hope are at least a few interviews about the book. Um, and so now you're saying it out loud. It's a talking dog. Um, but it's always been central to it. So it's almost like I can't, you know, um, it's that part of the song that the other parts come and go, but it's that one thing that has to stay or it's no longer that song. Um, and I, I'm fully aware that there are, for some readers, it's going to be, you know, a bridge too far. <laughs> and what else have I got to read? You know, um, <laughs> at least it's fairly it's, early. It's fairly early. Uh, it's no spoiler. I mean, it's, you know, it's not the first page, but it's pretty early. Um, but it's, it's just always been, it was important before I knew why it was important. Does that make sense? Um, and it's only as it, as a plot point that it's stuck around so doggedly, get it? So doggedly, um, that over time I began to understand more why it was there. How much of you is in the various characters in the book? Not unlike the last one, it's, I'm a little bit in, in there for all of them. I mean, there has to be some core little piece for me to, to worm my way in. But again, unlike the last book, I really don't, I don't see as much as myself in either one as, as I had in, in the previous novel. Um, and it might almost be, it ebbs and flows. There are moments in the book where I feel myself more present in Nina and moments in the book where I feel myself more present in Ben. Do you find it challenging to write from the perspective of characters with different gender identity, race, or sexual orientation? Yes. Um, but <laughs> I'm still determined to do it. So, um, you know, it's, you always, 
to me, that's a, uh, it's a revision and craft thing is what helps you get it right. And so for the first draft, you have to be completely willing to just write whatever, um, to really feel like you are that character for however long that you're sitting there writing from that character's point of view. And then when you go back, have a little more objectivity to see if it's working, if you're pulling it off, if you're being fair, um, and then tweak it. Again, the tweaking almost has to happen without you thinking about it, like you dive back into the pool, basically, and rummage around and then pull out again and see how close you got. Um, I don't think that I'm not one who believes that you can only write from the perspective that you personally inhabit. But I do think you have to be very hyper aware of the other perspectives. And when you do jump into those other perspectives, try to be the best, you know, of whatever it is you're writing that you possibly can be, you owe it to them. I don't want to give away the book's ending, but okay. I think it'd be acceptable to say that it doesn't have either of the possible. Was that something you decided early or did you work towards that? Um, I mean, endings are tricky, right? Endings. What is the phrase? And I never know who to credit. I've, I've heard Flannery O'Connor. Um, and I've heard Truman Capote, who are very two different, two very different creatures. But the idea that right, an ending should be surprising yet inevitable, um, and to land on that spot. So I had an ending image at some point, but I didn't know how I'd get there. And I wasn't even sure that that was the right ending image. But when I got there, it, it, it did feel right. Um, it was still a mess, but it was the right, like I'd landed in the right spot. Um, I hadn't landed there very well, but I, but I knew where it was going to be. So in terms of the various possible endings you could have, in terms of the Hollywood endings, I knew which ones would not work because that was not where you have to be true to all of the characters and I needed all the characters to land where they would really land after being what they had been through. Um, there's almost a, a pre ending and we're speaking in a very annoying code for anyone who hasn't read the book. <laughs> um, I think you'll know the, the pre ending I'm referring to. And that I knew very early on what happened. I didn't know what happened for the last 10% after that. Did your day job of history professor inform Ben's investigative work into the history of the band in any way? No, Ben's investigative work was informed by my time as a graduate student. So that's, that is writing what I know like that, the, the cube farm experience. And um, the thrill and the um, stultifying dullness of the whole research, you know, um, job, the research journey, that's all straight from my, from my grad school days. And 
there really was a cube farm and I had a cubicle and there really was a ratty old couch, couch in the back. And <clears throat> in retrospect, I see a lot of the training was really just hanging out with other history geeks and fine tuning your ability to make and shape some sort of argument, be it about anything, be it about cheap trick or the role of taxes and the downfall of the Nixon administration or whatever it is you're going to debate about. Um, and the, the hunt, right, for trying to figure out what something could mean and looking for some particularly cool source and the idea of the process of, of interviewing people. And I, I, I found it fascinating to be with somebody and to realize they have a particular story they want to tell me. And I have a particular question I want answered. And those two things may not align. And what I have to do is not prevent them from telling any of their story because then they're going to shut down. But I also have to get them to possibly reveal more than they had intended or reveal something else they hadn't intended to reveal for me to get at whatever it is I was trying to figure out. Um, so all that is, is straight on grad school experience. What uh, kind of research were you doing? For my thesis, I looked at Atlanta and the later part of the 60s. So um, more 68 to 73, if we say that the 60s really go on until the early 70s or, you know, whatever the geeky uh, historical angle you want to take. Um, and I did do some research on the great speckled word, which plays a, a role in the book. Um, and not unlike Ben, I had thought at some point I would just that would be the thesis topic, something around the bird. But I couldn't get at the whole story there. And other people did underground newspapers. And the people I interviewed were all super helpful and, and had really been engaged, but they definitely had a version of that story they wanted to tell and they had already told people. And so I had to try to get at the era in other ways. Um, it's not a particularly good thesis I can see in retrospect. Um, and it's also the moment when I realized I didn't want to get the PhD, that the masters was a lot of fun and two years of graduate seminars, where you sit in a room with 12 people and tear apart or praise some book, which you may not have even read, but you've read enough about to be able to go in and fake a discussion. Um, I wanted to write more of what I wanted to write and to spend two or three more years researching another topic or this topic anymore to write some 400 page dissertation on it. Just, it just didn't do it for me. From Ben's perspective, you write history is told more by winners than losers. Yes. But the most lasting accounts are those written by better storytellers. So do you think that's true? And if so, can you elaborate? Yes, I, I do think it's true. I was listening to the quote, remembering what I'd written. Um, and I think what he's saying is not, it's, 
I would say yes. The the winners, the story of the winners certainly tend to dominate the discussion as time goes along. And that it's the the best written, the the best stories told. Those, yeah, those are the ones that are going to last. They may not be the most accurate, but part of what makes history last is is the public at large being able to to latch on to the story and to being able to have a way into the story. And that's what a good storyteller is going to do. They're going to shape the story in a way that the reader buys it. It's you're, you're selling your version of the story. I mean, it's history is, is right. As much art as science. Um, and the framing and the shaping of the story you're telling I think goes a long way to how to how much that story is going to last. And by last, I mean like, you know, of the 150 stories of 150 million books written about the Civil War, right? Which ones have lasted? Um, and when a revisionist version comes along, I think it what really makes a revisionist version get noticed is that it is particularly well told. Um, uh, off the top of my head, and it's been a long time since I've read anything, I'm thinking of Reconstruction, right? And Reconstruction being retold, revisited, and revised a couple generations later. It's a couple generations ago is the stuff I'm thinking of. I'm sure there's stuff since then. But um, when those interpretations came along, part of what allow them to strike a chord, right, was that they had been well-written and that they had been well-shaped. It's, it's the structure of the story, I think, that really, more and more, I think it's that structure and that framing that allows somebody to get into it that allows these versions to last. Right, like, probably the same reason why all these people believe that we landed on the moon. I mean, well-told. <laughs> right, I mean... As if, but wait until my next book comes out, blows the lid off that whole thing. <laughs> All right. I, I, I've grouped together uh, some, some of the quotes here. Uh, so now I'm going to, I'm going to switch over to Nina. All right. Uh, Nina wonders, maybe you have to figure out what crucial pieces you are missing before you can match up with someone who helps you find your balance. Now this strikes me as a far more sophisticated take on you complete me as well as opposites attract. I'm curious now, <laughs> sorry to demean your writing, <laughs> but I'm curious whether you subscribe to that notion in real life or if it's just a character's musings. First of all, it's never demeaning to compare me to opposites attract, right? <laughs> Bring it on. Um, <laughs> well, the, if we're talking Paul Abdul, of course, right? And, and Jeff Jensen. It's, it's either that or straight up, you know, let me give me one of those. Um, um, I think that she really believes it. Um, so now I, I, this is a moment where I do have to try to, to take a second because I, I remember writing that line very well, and, but I was full on Nina at that point, not to sound spooky or multiple personality guy, but like, you know, that was, that was an epiphany she had. And as a writer, it was kind of one of those neat moments where I hadn't planned 
to write that or for even for her to now I'm going to have Nina pause and reflect about what all this means. Like it just kind of came out. I do think that balance in any relationship, right, is key. I'm thinking both of the band I was in and say even if any of our listeners, and they probably have watched all 87 hours of Get Back, right? Like those are four very distinct personalities. And one of them has to be Ringo, who's nice to everybody and can sit there patiently and occasionally doze off. Like a fourth George or Paul at that moment would not have served anybody well. (laughs) Um, And in my own marriage, it's there are moments where you need someone to be whatever it is you're not at that moment. Um, And it's not always the same, whatever it is, but to maintain that balance, I I do think that, yes, um, if somebody in whatever group you're in, be it a marriage or a band, um, faculty at a school, whatever, like somebody has that other piece that you don't always have, can't always pull up, I do think is kind of important. And I, I, w- I guess um, Nina had this epiphany watching others as she's trying to figure out, right, whether she's ever going to be in any sort of relationship successful. And if she was, what it would look like. Because she doesn't have a whole lot of models from her own family. It's only when she begins to look at her friends that she begins to see this. Ben's father has a philosophy that the world is divided into two types of people, actors and assessors. It's definitely something you'd see in an infomercial or a self-help book. Uh, Ben doesn't like being pigeonholed as an assessor, even though based on the definitions, it's clearly what he is and what both of us are. Yep. So (laughs) why do I totally sympathize with Ben despite the shoe fitting? (laughs) Because we we're getting this concept from Ben's father. Um, We're getting the concept from a salesman and we don't ever want our salesman (laughs) to be right about anything, even though sometimes they are, which is why they can sell shit. Right. So, um, Yes, Ben does does not want that to be right. He's convinced it's not right. Part of why he doesn't want that to be right is that he's, I think, it's because Ben himself has not really understood who who he is at that moment. Um, I also understand his annoyance about the idea, um, but I also think that as a concept, it's 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 fairly high on the the bullshit quotient. So I'm not too bothered by it. I mean, I, (laughs) I guess I'm an assessor. Um, but the idea that there's a, and there's B and that's it is what makes it so easy to sell. And I have no doubt that his father's going to go become even richer because of this. Um, (laughs) but that doesn't mean I think that there's anything actually all that nuanced about it at the same time. I say, correcting myself, part of why I I left it in the book, and it's one of those subplots that every revision, I'm like, is that staying or is that going? Um, It's because I do, I think it's just potentially true enough 
that it works, that there are people who need to do this stuff that the rest of us then have to go out and figure out what it all means. Meanwhile, another character, Howard, says the world is divided into people who take life seriously and those who don't. Like with any dichotomy, the reality is usually not binary, all one or the other. Yep. Uh, where do you place yourself on the serious, not serious continuum? I like the way that um, that that it is later reframed when Nina goes home and talks to Sid. Um, that it's by serious, maybe what Howard's meaning is, is those who are present and those who aren't. Um, in which case I am consistently striving <laughs> and often failing to be someone who is present. Um, but that's when I'm happiest and that's when I'm, I feel most like myself. And I, again, that's not a line I had planned on writing, but when he said it, it made sense to me because I was at that point, I, I could see Howard seeing Nina and I could see Howard seeing something in Nina that not everybody else had noticed, not even herself. Um, and I like that. There's quite a bit of Buddhist philosophy in the novel. Was that an interest of yours prior to writing the book? And did you have to bone up on the subject matter to, <laughs> did you have to bone up on the subject matter? <laughs> yes and yes. You know, I, uh, my day job, as you mentioned, is I, I, I teach sometimes better than others. Um, one of my favorite things to teach at a college level is, is Buddhism. Um, all the philosophies as a side, as a sidebar on teaching, what I've learned over time is for college freshmen, the basic logistics of an empire rising or falling or any of that is completely superfluous to them. Like they really have no interest. What they'll really get engaged with are the ideas and um, the system. I call them the isms. I'm like, you know, when you, we're looking at isms, we're looking at systems, systems of thought or systems of economics or systems of power, right? And when you get a philosophy going, that's when they can suddenly kind of become engaged. Um, it's probably the stuff that, let's face it, as you know, at the high school level, there's a, so much content you have to get across in such a limited amount of time for the looming standardized test that is coming. There's probably more content I should be getting across, but they're reading the textbook and their college students. I'm like, whatever. Um, <laughs> I almost focus entirely on very small aspects of the larger things that we're talking about. Anyway, so Buddhism, the idea of walking around a room and trying to get students to engage in the, the present, we're back to the present, the idea that we are here, you know, and I'll say more than once a semester, it's never going to be, you know, 11, 15 a.m. on February 14th, 2022 again. I hope you enjoyed that moment because it is gone. And I'll also say things like, you know, just as a reminder, everybody in this room will someday be dead. And I did have a very nice young freshman girl once raise her hand and say, 
please don't say that again. It really <laughs> makes me uncomfortable when you say that. Um, so of all the religions, sidebar, whether or not Buddhism is a religion, of course, is something that you can debate on your own after the podcast. Um, I find value in the idea that our, our goal is to be in this particular moment as much as possible. So I had dabbled in it. I read, I had read the Karen Armstrong book. Um, and I, I studied up on it, but I didn't, I also didn't want to become an expert on it because none of the characters in the book and we're dancing around certain subjects here, but none of the characters in the book are experts. And I'm primarily writing from Nina and Ben point of view. And since neither one of them, them as an expert, I didn't want to have something come out that would not have come from their point of view. Does that make sense? So I needed to know just enough to get myself in trouble with any and all Buddhists that read the book. Back to locations for a second. How much time did you spend uh, researching locations to visualize what you're writing about and to ensure you didn't make any obvious mistakes? I mean, I do remember you talking about going to your first uh, uh, coffee house or uh, open mic, rather, your first open mic, uh, just to kind of you know, get the lay of the land. So uh, how much time did, did, did that take versus just recall and imagination? Yeah, so the so Nina's neighborhood I knew fairly well, um, but I had lived there years ago. So I did walk around. I did spend an afternoon walking around, just seeing what she would have seen on her strolls with Sid, and what and what loops. If you lived here on point X and you had a dog and you needed a walk of, you know, a certain amount every night, like what would your most common loops be? And so I really wanted to get those right. Um, I used to have even more detail until I realized um, one of my early readers pointed out, he's like, you know, I don't need to know every street name. Like you really don't need to just have, you know, a super detail blow by blow about, where she's walking the dog. Like we don't need to know all the names enough. So they could have had a map. Huh? Yeah. You could have had a map. I should have like Lord of the Rings. Right. (laughs) Map of Macon from 1960 something and a map of Atlanta. So, I mean, that was, that was all the research I did as far as her location goes. I mean, Piedmont Park, certainly I know well enough. Um, And Georgia State, I mean, I was there for years, so I know that well enough. But you're right, the open mic was, I had never been to an open mic. And while I certainly have a imagination, I also thought, well, I want to get the actual, like, and want the logistics of it to be right. Um, so I went to Big Texas open mic and just spent an hour and a half watching the performers to see how long each had and like, what did the place feel like, you know, on a Tuesday night, you know, what does that room feel like? So I can kind of get that across. And I did bring my friend, uh, Jessica, Jessica Handler, who also writes. And that's where I had the idea of like one word for each act. 
I thought, oh, they would, <laughs> they'd be talking, but they don't want to talk too much. And it's good to have friends who are up for anything. So I'm like, okay, so we get to say one word after each. And she's like, great, let's do it. And, you know, some of them in the book are just exactly taken from, from that night. Which uh, makes me think of the, uh, I'm blanking on the exact phrasing. Was it Jesus will get you there? Is that the? Uh... Oh, yeah. And uh, was that a real thing? That was career? not a real thing. I've certainly seen my share of really um, unintentionally funny t-shirts and hats as I've traveled this great country. And I, <laughs> there are a couple that I almost called uh, Jeff Jensen to, to pick his brain about some funny ones. But then I thought of Jesus will get you there. And I thought, well, that, that writes itself. To be clear, that spelled that was spelled in the book T H E I R, <laughs> and uh, there's a a very fun riff that uh, runs the book that we won't ruin, uh, but that 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 is uh, that's the illusion there. Um, ben has a playlist of songs he listens to while writing, and I know that you also listen to music when you write. Um, is your um, playlist rules similar to his? And if so, what kind of things are on your playlist? So I have a different approach uh, from first <clears throat> from first draft to revision. So a first draft playlist is best if it's, you know, three and four minute, fairly upbeat songs from a wide variety of artists. And I find for whatever reason that it helps my brain stay just engaged enough with that. Um, that I can just plow straight ahead and get the energy to keep writing without being too distracted about what's going on musically. Uh, for revisions, I, um, I like full albums. And for this particular revision, I did a lot of double albums. That kind of became, it just was a way of like trying to find up some interesting stuff. So, you know, um, Everything from, you know, the White Album to uh, Chicago's first or second record, Chicago Transit Authority, which is a double album back when Chicago was kind of actually kicking and had some some life. Um, the playlist for the actual first draft. Hold on. I do have my playlist, which I call Miscellaneous Writing. Um uh, it's got some, it's got some Beck songs, the band, Aerosmith, um, to kick it old school. Um, oh, Blondie, that's a good one. I have a soft spot for female British neo-soul singers like Leon Le Havis, and that's usually in there somewhere. Ideally kind of changing mood, but propulsive throughout. I I find I don't know when it when exactly it happened, but my attention span or my I can't do two things at once. Music will just completely shut me down. I cannot. I mean, it. it you seem to have like almost a need to be minorly distracted. Would you say? You know, I mean, yeah. that, I mean sort of like the 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 ADHD drumming thing that yeah. <laughs> the tapping that you would do as a yeah. child and need to, to occupy yourself right yes it's a way for me to get more into the uh, we're going to go back to the buddhism angle like uh, 
I heard a podcast recently with a writer talking about the connection between meditation and writing. And I don't meditate, but I would argue that sometimes my listening music is my meditation. Like it's, that's what's clearing my mind just enough for my mind to really just be itself. And I think it's because it's, it's been such a large part of my life since, you know, since I first discovered that if you put the needle on that big plastic disc, like it made sound and things were so much better when that was happening. <laughs> and speaking of music, this new book has a, an eight song soundtrack, I believe. Yes. Um, can you talk about how these songs developed over the course of writing the novel? Well, I would love to. So the songs for the soundtrack, um, you know, I confess that I began this book thinking I am not doing a soundtrack. I'm not going to be your one trick pony America. Thank you very much. And the original Ben's original dissertation topic was not Honeybird, the band, the original dissertation topic was Hank Honeybird, the father, but it was kind of, it's was a more tired subject to me. Um, I mean, I find Hank Honeybird interesting. Don't get me wrong. And I have pages and pages of backstory of, of Hank Honeybird that didn't fit in this book. Um, to be clear, he's a, a, a racist, old school poli Georgia politician. Yes. Um, the, the Biscuit King of Macon. Thank you very much. Oh, that too. I'm sorry. I, I started, you know, a chain of, uh, well, two successful um, restaurants known for their, their gravy and biscuits. Um, and he wants to to dom you know to build off that to become a successful politician and he decides to run for an open senate seat and there really was an open senate seat that year um but he's running against um in georgia in the 50s there was this the talmadge family several of them became politicians each more racist than the other and the only way for him to win the senate seat is to win the primary because in Georgia, the Democratic primary in the 50s was basically the election. Um, and the only way to do that is to be further to the right than one of the Talmages, which is physically impossible. Like they are never going to let anyone, you know, be more racist than they are. Um, so when, when the band, when Harlan became the subject, that's when I realized, oh, I am going to write some songs for there will be a soundtrack for this one. Um, and for the previous book, the first song written was Gardenia. And Jeff Jensen, who I've known since third grade, uh, eagerly accepted the challenge. He was the first person I asked to write music for a fictional band for a novel that at that point, like it may not even, even ever come out. Two minutes later, writes right back. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. So like, okay, so I got another project in mind. This time I need someone who's willing to write songs from the point of view of a, a Southern rock band of the sixties. And once again, Jeff was right up for it. So heavy, heavy hands was the first one written for this record. Um, the last record part of the fun and 
challenge was 14 songs with I don't know how many different people playing. I mean, it was it was a lot. And to get that soundtrack finished really became almost a full-time job at the end. As you can imagine, you've assembled a few records yourself, like to to get missing tracks from people who are doing this for nothing. Uh, like you have to find that sweet spot of, I do have a deadline. Um, anyway, so this time I'm like, I don't want to do 14 songs and I also want to keep it more of a core. I wanted Honeybird to sound more or less pretty consistent. Um, so I got Jeff to sing all the songs Harlan Honeybird sings and my good friend John Daly to produce it. And Johnny also wrote the music for a song. My good friend Bob Fenster wrote the music for a song. That's who you think of when you think of Southern rock. All right. I will admit we took the demo and we did Southern rock it up a little bit. Um, what are the other Honeybird songs? Oh, uh, Chuck Walston wrote a Honeybird song. It was perfect. And one of them is done in two different versions. So that's five Honeybird songs. No, six Honeybird songs, because one's done twice. And those were, it was just very satisfying to have a smaller group, was easier to manage. And to pull this off, dear listener, should you ever want to, you just got to find um, compatriots who are willing to go all in. Which almost gets back to the earlier question about why would you keep writing even if you're not even sure it's ever going to be published? Well, these are the people you need on your team. It's like we are going to make the best goddamn fictional Southern Rock EP anyone's ever made. And no one may ever hear it. <laughs> but the only way to do it is to go all in. Um, and And that's what we did. And then there's two songs that are not sung by Honeybird. Um, one of which my good friend Kim Ware wrote the music for. Uh, and one with uh, my friend Chris Houck. Houch? Houck? I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name. I should know it at this point. Um, I needed a, uh, like an early 2000s indie pop hit. And so... All I had was the chorus and I sent the words for the chorus to Chris and 24 hours later, he's like, Oh, here, so does this work? I'm like, yes. So that's the song glorious, which is to say it long story short, it wind the process of making the soundtrack wind up being as helpful as the process for making the soundtrack for the last one, which is that you start with the song sort of generally in your brain and you give it to somebody you trust and they write the music and it all comes together. And then when you go back and revise the moments where that song appears in the book are that much, I hope much more vivid because you actually have the thing to, to listen to and then to try to, to describe. Of course it makes it, it, it's one of those things where you absolutely have to, you have to nail it <laughs> because if you, if it's wrong, then it's just like, wait, that's not what it, you know, it's like when they, when they make a movie out of a novel that you love. And so it's like casting Daniel Radcliffe to play Weird Al Yankovic. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, no. 
but speaking of well you know we we've we've woven in and out of the other novel the weight of sound um both of your novels feature rock musicians in some form and we've talked about how you come from that world um there's undoubtedly a certain amount of writing what you know in there but at heart at heart both novels are more about people and their relationships um do you feel any pressure to go in a different direction for book number three, or are you going to triple down? And I've, I've started number three, so I, I am tripling down, but I have also started um, book number four. There's, oh. I had started a book right after um, Honeybird, and I got about 50 pages in, and it was not dissimilar from the feeling I had from the first pass of trying to write Honeybird 15 years ago. Like it wasn't like, it's not baked yet. Um, and I know what it's going to be and it's not going to have a soundtrack. <laughs> Same time. I had this idea, um, for the next one, my elevator pitch is, uh, Virginia Wolf's uh, Mrs. Dalloway, but with, a Burger King employee as the main character instead of an upper class uh, woman. So, um, and that will have a soundtrack. It will be a different kind of soundtrack, which is part of what allows me, I think, to like. There's still stuff to mine here. Um, it's it's a different kind of. It'll be a very different kind of recording process and, and recordings that I'm talking about. And I've also decided that I'm just going to call this my Atlanta trilogy. <laughs> and the first three will all feature, in some degree, rock musicians with soundtracks. And that the fourth will not, <laughs> he says very optimistically. <laughs> but th this one feels less rock bandy to me than the first one. Um, and I like that you say that they are at the core about more about the relationships and the characters than the the musical trappings and the 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 band in this one at the particular story is i think so i hope interesting enough that i think it will be something that gets talked about and noticed but it's not a large part of the book uh jeff who is singing harlan's role has not read the book he doesn't want to read the book until it's actually published. Oh, okay. And we he makes jokes every now and then about Harlan doing this or Harlan doing that. And I need to I've been trying to gently break it to him like, you're not really in the book <laughs> all that much. Very important part, but it's not you know, it's really it's the story of of Ben, it's the story of Nina and the the two subplots that um shape each of them along the way yeah where can people get a copy of songs by honey bird and while we're at it the weight of sound and where can they hear the soundtracks to both books excellent questions um yes and yes so uh as of today you can find the book um online quite easily uh there's the uh, evil lord satan website that we all use and serve but there's a website called bookshop.org where some of the money goes to independent bookstores and uh 
they will also have it. If you have an indie bookstore in your town, show them some love. And it would also help me if you went there and you asked for it and they didn't have it, they could order it and then they're going to get a little cut along the way. And then maybe they'll see that, I mean, they'll, it'll come in and they'll just be so <laughs> bowled over by randomly flipping open a page that they will begin to stock it. The soundtrack, um, all your streaming services will have the soundtrack and you can purchase both soundtracks if you go to Bandcamp. And all this information will be available on my personal website, which you should know and love, peterjmcdade.com. It can't be petermcdade.com because there's some guy in Australia with like pictures from the beach 20 years ago <laughs> who had that domain. So I, so I had to stick the J in there. Fair enough. Peter, it is always been, it's always a pleasure to, to spend any time with you. This is our third interview together. <laughs> and That's the hat trick, baby. It, it, it is. This is the first one that we actually could see each other for and live. Um, I've, it's been, it's been my pleasure to, uh, to read your books, uh, to, to be part of the, uh, the, the copy editing process and, uh, to watch the, the both novels evolve and to be a small part of, of the soundtracks. And, uh, I can't wait till people get their hands on this thing and, uh, and give it a listen as well. Speaking of giving it a listen, let's plug that as well. Oh, yes. There is an audiobook this time. Yes, thank you very much. I thought about it for the last one, but it was just too much for my tiny brain to take on in addition to a soundtrack and a novel. So I outsourced it this time um, because they did have a lot of people ask me if there was an audiobook. So I have two narrators because I thought it would be kind of fun to have the Nina chapters with one narrator and the Ben chapters with another. So... Nina's chapters are narrated by Jill Melanson, who is, interestingly, the sister of Paul Melanson, who was, still is, the voice of Spider-Webb from the first soundtrack and a talented singer-songwriter in his own right. And Jill does a lot of audio work and um, voiceovers and, and book narrations. And in fact... Jill's the reason we met Paul because Jill worked at WRES and was playing Uncle Green Records back, you know, 8,000 years ago and introduced us to her little brother. And the other chapters are narrated by Tom Bowers, who also, this is what he does full time. And he also is, I don't know, one of the two or three best bass players in the universe. <laughs> and I think it works really well. Um, I haven't listened to the whole thing, I admit, because I've read this book so many times. <laughs> but I really don't know that I could listen to it again, but it was it's very interesting to hear it read by other people. Yeah. Um, it really does give it a, a whole new spin. So if you are an audiobook fan, it is out there. I got your paperback, I got your ebook, I got your audiobook, I got your soundtrack. <laughs> And we're making T-shirts. I don't know what else I can do. Master of all domains. To, to plug this thing. And to go back for a second, don't let your host sell himself short. He he read the book three times? I think. Um, when you're writing something, 
maybe this will bring us full circle to when you consider yourself a quote unquote serious writer. Um, when you're writing something to have a handful of trusted early readers is that at least for me, and I know every writer's got different approaches, but for me, it's invaluable to bring it out of your head and to give it to somebody else and to see what is working the way you intended it and what isn't. Um, it's not that you agree with everything everybody says when they come back to you. Um, I don't want to give the spoiler. There's one very small matter that Mr. Fenster was convinced he was right on. <laughs> and in the end, he was. And the, the moment works much better this way. Um, but it's just to be able to get that that feedback. Um, because you, you get this tunnel vision. I mean, I, I spent almost five years on this version of it and I've written the whole other thing it took me three years. So it's like, you know, at some point you need somebody to bounce back off of. Um, it's part of what I miss from being in a band, right? You have that immediate feedback of as soon as you start to play something, you know, someone makes the gagging motion because it's not working or does the touchdown motion because it is right. You know, it's like that you lose that lost in your own head with this book and with these characters. Yeah. So Bob Fenster was an instrumental and in the success or failure, whatever doesn't work, I'm blaming Bob. All the bad choices. Uh, of the book, yes. <laughs> All right, we're going to have to cut it there. We're over the hour. The uh, the big uh, Showtime at the Apollo hook is coming out. Pete, thanks so much. Uh, talk to you for the fourth interview when the next book is done. All right? I, I look forward to it. Thank you for having me. <laughs>